This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 2. This season, the focus is on listening to the voices of our Black friends, neighbors, and strangers in order that we might better learn from their experiences of what it's like being Black in America. I am honored to introduce Mr. J. Kevin Powell to you today. He's one of those rare people who actually lives what he believes. He's also amazing at what he does, which is facilitate discussions with corporations and all types of organizations and schools about racism and other isms through questions and interactive activities. He actually calls it culture, and we're going to learn a lot about that today. He actively works at helping others identify where they have prejudices and how they can work to grow and include the other. It's beautiful, necessary, hard work he does. Kevin has all the best words. I'm envious of his ability to string such genius sentences together. He definitely has the gift of communication. Kevin is a graduate of Howard University who owns his own marketing and media company called Open Windows Culture. Even though he sounds like a real-life superhero who spends his days saving Americans from all types of segregation, he is also a husband, father, musician, and lover of martial arts who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. The thing I love so much about Kevin is his deep, authentic genuineness. Everything he does comes out of a desire for a deeper connection between differing cultures. For example, in both his book and his podcast, he opens with ground rules for conversation, which he's learned throughout his years as a facilitator. These are genius and can aptly be applied to our everyday lives. I'm going to list them for you here. One, no personal disclaimers. Things like, I don't mean to offend you or I don't mean to say it meanly. Two, no industry speak. That's just a shortcut. Three, listen with the intent to understand. So you want to listen more than respond. Four, be comfortable being wrong. Being human means we make mistakes. That's how we grow. Five, don't intentionally harm others. We're not here to insult people. Six, just use I statements. This leaves space for perspectives other than your own and gives you an opportunity to grow. Seven, understand your facts could be wrong. We put our own personal bias on so many things, even our facts. Eight, make purposeful mistakes. Practice is controlled failure. Your failure is your growth. That is one of my favorite lines, he says. I am all over that one. And lastly, end it with an action. We have to do something with this new information we acquire. He always says, you can be a part of the answer. Isn't this genius? So now that you know where Kevin is coming from, let's get to know Kevin. Mr. J. Kevin Powell, I am thrilled to have you on Gramercy today. I learned so much from your book, and I really enjoy your thought-provoking podcast, and I am so grateful for the diversity work you do in communities around the United States. I'm so honored that you would join me, and I can't wait to learn from you today. Oh yeah, excited for this. 
I usually like to open with an easy icebreaker question, but I'm not sure that it's exactly that easy. This would be a hard one for me to answer, but who are three people, dead or alive, that you would like to have over for a dinner party and why? That's hard. You know, for some reason, I've never thought about that question. And I think partly it's because everybody who was supposed to come over for a dinner party in my life has. You know, so it's is something along the line of I've met the people I'm supposed to meet to be where I'm supposed to be. What a great way of thinking about it that way. So starting out with number one, I'm a music fan. I'm a musician. And so uh, Miles Davis, I'm a fan of Miles Davis and Miles Davis's artistry. Um, don't know about the man. I've read his autobiography. Might have been a little bit, you know, he had a personality, but I would still love to have actually had a conversation with him um, just to understand who he is as a human being and what in his head and his mind, how it worked and how he got from one point to the next point. So that would be one. Um, I think the second would be Earl Graves. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Earl Graves, but Earl Graves is, um, I'm, I'm very into media. And I'm very into media. This even goes into the diversity and culture and racism thing, which was that um, growing up in Baltimore, I would say two, the two things that would change people's opinions are the church and the media. And so you have to be called to be a minister, be in church, which I don't think is who I was called to be. <laughs> but understanding media and how media worked was something that was that always interested me. And Earl Graves was actually a business entrepreneur, and he started Black Enterprise Magazine and created a big media conglomerate out of Chicago. And so, yeah, so I would have really loved to understand how that happened, the process of that happening. And that was, I don't know if it goes back as far as the 40s. I think it was launched somewhere like late, but the 1950s on forward, you know, that that's a whole era in its own. So... So, yeah, so understanding what he went through for that process and just getting an idea of his mind. And then on the same side of that, Kathy Hughes, Hughes who um, ran Radio One, which had a lot of radio, urban radio uh, affiliates. Um, she grew a completely large mass conglomerate out of that also. So I would love to just just pick the mind there because, you know, it, the idea is like, you went out, you started this, you built this, you built this in an era where it wasn't necessarily made for you to be successful. And then you built it up. But at the same time, you were a gatekeeper as to what people heard and learned and understood. And so I just want to know not only how did you got there professionally, but what did you feel as far as how you felt socially and what your social impact was? I love how you verbalize that about the black media entrepreneurs being gatekeepers for what people heard, learned, and understood. Wow, that's powerful. And I had never considered that before. Thank you for opening my eyes to this. This makes me want to learn more about these pioneers. Yep, they are. They are. I, I honestly feel like if you wanted to make a big change, if you can get your hands in one of those two and start out there, you're, you're, you're touching and creating the change. So you even think of somebody like Rupert Murdoch, who as whatever opinion somebody might have of him at one time in his life, he could reach 75% of the world's population. Wow, that's a lot of influence. So that's one person who can choose what three quarters of the world sees and understands. Wow. 
the power we give media to shape our lives, thoughts, and world. Yep. Kevin, I'd love to know what it was like growing up being you. What are some of the things you cherish the most about your childhood? And what were some of your greatest hardships that helped shape your character and life to be who you are today? Okay. Life was interesting growing up. <laughs> you know, we're we're talking about kind of coming into this talking about racism, but you know, when you're a black man, racism isn't something you kind of isolate. It's everywhere. Um, and so growing up and I grew up in Baltimore and I grew up in the city, not outside the city, which, you know, you know, sometimes have you have people who claim an area, but I was in the city. And so you're talking about a city whose main TV shows for recognition are Homicide and, <laughs> and The Wire and Charm City Kings and things like that. And so you're talking about an environment that isn't always the most positive environment. And you have a, a young kid who's kind of the thoughtful, analytically based, yet emotional young kid who wants to understand the world and why the world is the way it is. Um, but you're doing that in a city, in an area that's almost somewhat, and I hate to say it, but it's still consistent today. There's somewhat a hopeless feeling when you're kind of in there. Um, so you're in an area where you're kind of trying to escape, uh, at least mentally on some level. And you're trying to escape it mentally, but at the same time, you're physically in this place that feels kind of hopeless. And, and so you're working in between that being somebody who's trying to be optimistic and work through it. And so that just kind of leads towards certain issues. And then you have racial issues on top of that when you're dealing with um, police who might be looking at you in a certain way or dealing with you in a certain way when you're not necessarily you're, you're just in the wrong environment at the time. First of all, I've never heard anyone reference it this way, but I was very moved by what you said. When you're a black man, racism isn't something you isolate. It's everywhere. Wow, that's deep and sadly true. I like your explanation of being in the wrong environment at the wrong time, but I'm amazed at your ability to look back on the hardship and hold that liminal space of hopelessness and optimism in the same breath. I can tell how that has shaped you and made you become the person you are today. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it, it's, I, I even, it, here's a story that I think is kind of funny or not necessarily funny. It's just realistic, you know. Um, in April, I'll be 42. And so it wasn't until maybe two and a half years ago. So let's say roughly 39 hitting on 40 that I even bought a hoodie from the store. Seriously? I refuse to wear and even now, even now, for example, when I check the weather in the morning on the day that I might throw on some sweatpants and a hoodie, I check the weather. Is it going to be 40 or 50 degrees once it gets dark? Because I, I still refuse to wear it at night. So I need to know if it's going to be too cold, too late, I'm wearing something else. Because one, one, once, the, once the sun goes down, I'm taking it off. It's going to be me in a t-shirt. That makes me so sad to hear. That's just awful. It's not that the hoodie has a negative connotation. It's what, maybe it is, but it's how people automatically respond to it. Because I'm a black man in a hoodie may generate a certain effect, a certain response, and rather and certain assumptions. And it doesn't matter if it's stylish. It doesn't matter if it's fitted. 
It, you know, I, I don't wear baggy clothes. I, I prefer fitted clothes. I prefer a nice, wonderful, clean look. Um, but if you have that on in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong assumptions, then things can go badly, can go bad very quickly. I have to say, I don't know one white person that second guesses wearing a hoodie at night. That's not fair that it's a consideration you have to make on a daily basis because it could be a life or death decision based on people's perceptions alone. Only, only, yeah, yeah. I mean, for some people, and, and I remember having a conversation a couple years ago at church and they were talking about how often do you spend thinking about what clothes you put on? And they were talking about broadly, you know, they were saying this broadly to everybody and I'm raising my hand all the time, every day, every moment. You know, I think about what you, you think about in marketing perspective or a media perspective. You know, I think about what I'm putting on because I have to think about what it's saying to you. Because if I go in the wrong place or go into the wrong position or just go somewhere without having thought that out and I have the wrong thing on, the same hoodie that I'm wearing, let's say it even has my college on it. I went to Howard. Let's say it says Howard on it. doesn't matter. It's a hoodie. You know, it doesn't matter. It's a hoodie. Let's say I'm doing some yard work and my yard work clothes are different than my good clothes. You know, so my yard work clothes might be baggy and I just run to the store in some baggy clothes. That's going to say something different. There's a connotation to that. There's been media and marketing and this wonderful push in media that has said that this black guy in baggy clothes may equate to something else. So I have to think about that depending on where I'm going. That is such an intriguing revelation. The amount of energy and time you put into thinking about your clothes and what they say about you or how others might perceive you, man. Yeah. I mean, if you even think of it in relationship to like COVID-19 and everything we have going on now, I was resistant wearing a mask for the first couple weeks. I don't blame you. I completely understand your reasoning. Not because I didn't think they didn't work, <laughs> but I was getting followed around stores and asked questions and looked at sideways when I didn't have a mask on. Now you want me to put a mask on and walk in the store? I'm going to hold off for a couple of weeks. And this is in Atlanta that you have to worry about this. I'd love to know a little bit more about what it was like growing up in Baltimore. Could you tell me what your neighborhood was like or... The environment, you know what, the environment we grew up in really has such a, a great impact on us, like how we see the world and whether or not we have hope or optimism. Did your neighborhood have like parks and green space and clean streets or was it just a concrete jungle? I think aesthetics affect us more than we know. I think it does fall along that line where you have areas and I, I took my wife there and she hadn't been there before. And, you know, luckily when you compare where I grew up versus up the street, where I grew up was the nice part compared to, you know, up the street and some people away from me. And for people who are familiar with Baltimore, if you take a look around Pimlico Racetrack, um, that'll give you a, a very good idea um, of where it is. But you can drive down Park Heights, Pimlico Racetrack in that area. And you have that uh, that literal crossing of the track there where you just go across and one side is clean and grass and lawn. The next side you have three or four liquor stores within the first block and a half. You have the convenience store. You have a, a lot of homelessness. You just have a lot of poverty where you, you can't escape it and you can't move out of it. Um, 
And so you have this area where you're looking at it and you look at the area and you can see it's run down and you can see it's not well taken care of. And at the same time, is it not well taken care of because people don't care for it? Is it not well taken care of because people inside feel as though they can't escape it anyway? So even though it's not a literal prison, it's a mental and emotional prison because, you know, for generations, families have been stuck there and have been unable to get out. Yes, yes, yes. That is so true. I totally saw where the despair, the lack of hope come from when you said that many poor neighborhoods are a mental and emotional prison for people. What a fantastic visual. But, you know, I've heard so many people say, well, if you don't like it or if there's no opportunity, just move. I don't think it's as simple as that, is it? I remember a kid in freshman year of high school, and he was selling drugs. And if you stop it there, you if you don't want to hear more, you're like, okay, this kid's a bad kid. It's a bad story. And that's where a lot of people stop. They don't look for deeper definition. They don't understand. They don't look for why. And if you look at the economy in the city of Baltimore, there aren't a lot of big box or a lot of large stores or commercial retail there. It's most it's a lot of mom and pop. And so you have a 14 year old kid. He's got three siblings. He's the oldest. Uh, father has passed. Mother has cancer. Mother can't work. They're in a house that has a mortgage or rent. Somebody's got to pay for it. He's 14. He can't get a real job. And if he can, he can work at what? At what? 20 hours the most. And then you say, well, why don't he, why don't you get a different job, a better paying job, something? Well, if you've got to take a bus an hour and a half to get to someplace out the city because you don't have a car or you've got to take a taxi, which is real expensive, and it's going to take any money that you might earn on a minimum wage job. Then what do you do? You know, you're trying to keep people in the house. You're trying to keep people fed. You're trying to take care of your mother. You're a grown man at 14, which is just not the way it should be. Oh, the scenario is already breaking my heart. This is just too heavy of a burden for any 14-year-old to carry. It's too heavy. Yeah, it's too heavy. The easiest route the, and the best route. I mean, the largest industry right there. If you're going to go out and get a job, it's I can try and go to this place and get a job for $750 with 30% taken out. Or I can go down here, get paid in cash, pay the rent, pay the bills. And then on top of that, you're trying to be good or he's trying to be good. And he's like, well, I don't sell anybody who isn't already addicted. You're right. He's in a position where he has to choose, which is the least bad of two horrible options. It seems like a lose-lose situation. This probably plays out a thousand times a day in poor neighborhoods, doesn't it? Who are we to sit on our high horses and judge these poor kids as morally reprehensible? They're just trying to survive. We don't know what we'd choose if we were in his shoes. There's an emotional struggle, a moral struggle there, but because you because you want to stop at he's selling drugs is bad, you never get to the fact of he's trying to make a decision in the worst of scenarios with the best case and best intent in mind. And then what happens down the road for him, you know? Mm, it's not going anywhere good. There's no option for a 14 year old in that sense, in that, in that situation. And then what is the mother supposed to do? She's fighting cancer. She isn't getting a mortgage from any company. 
even before when she already had a job and she was working that consistently, if you look at how the systems and the, the systems may be set up, she just might not have all the paperwork or the structure or everything that's perfectly in place to get a mortgage. And that's assuming you can find someplace that you can afford that's somewhere near where you're going, not to mention the invisible cost of moving and everything. So, you know, you have all that in that area and you look at that area and it is like you say, people look at it and they say, well, why don't you just get up and move? Why don't you just shift? And you're and you're thinking you're doing the best you can. And sometimes the best you can is a is, is a trap. Uh, I lived in the city, but my parents originally when I was born. So I. I was born, I think I lived in one area of the city for about a year, you know, too young to remember. And then they moved out to the county for, I think it was kindergarten through the first half of second grade for me. And a part of that move, the first half through second grade, they were both teachers. They both had steady income. Um, so they were able to get that location and move out. But I guess unbeknownst to them, moved to a neo-Nazi. Right next door was a, a teenage neo-Nazi kid. Oh no! Um, so you know you're 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 going to a school, and it's one of those schools where there were three people at the school who were black. I lived with one of them, so that meant there was only one other black family in the area. It's all you had in this elementary school of three or four hundred people that were that were black, and so you have some. And, and my parents are of course telling me and filling me in on these stories because I don't know them all, but. You have the part where you realize once you hit 20 something that the dog that died was actually killed and the neighbor cut slit his throat or you realize the reasons that snakes kept on appearing in your yard was because your neighbor was throwing snakes in your yard, copperheads and lovely, really poisonous snakes in your yard. And that the reason the grass kept on being cut so low was because the neighbor kept on burning the grass and, and doing stuff like that. I just can't comprehend why and how people would be that cruel. And then you get other things on the side of that where my parents were like, because um, there was somebody else in the school that had Powell as the last name. And uh, apparently I had scored one of the higher grades or highest grades on the state test for first grade or something. And they tried to rework the paperwork and give it to the other kid instead of giving that great assignment to me because they didn't want me to be the highest greatest, the highest scoring kid in the class. So you have things like that where you're like, OK, get out and go where? <laughs> like, like that's that's what they thought they were doing. They were trying to get out and go somewhere else. You get out and you go somewhere else and you're doing your best and and you have somebody who's trying to who's killing your animals trying to burn your house down and refusing to let your kids actually get the quality of education or get uh, achieve the level of education they're achieving you know it sounds like your parents were doing everything right and thinking they were finding a safe and stable environment to raise you and your sister in and yet they still can't escape the cruelty and the shadow of racism I'm so sorry. Yeah, entirely. It seems like America's wealth gap is a major player in systemic poverty and systemic racism. Do you think they're interrelated? I, I really do. I really do. Um, that's actually, we were talking about develop the podcast coming down the road, Open Windows Culture Podcast. And that's actually the first series we're doing is going to be on uh, systemic racism and financial services. Uh, just because of that, 
you know, because of what has been the history there, what is the present situation going on there and how that wealth gap that was generated over so many hundreds of years has now affected the ability for people to actually be able to step up and go through. You know, I was talking about Park Heights. If you go to Park Heights, it's still it still looks very similar to what it did 20 years ago or ooh, 30 years ago when I was there. Um, I think the high school graduation rate actually in Baltimore City has actually gone down last time I checked. I mean, it was only in the 30s when I got out of there. It, I think it's in the upper 20s. That is a horrible statistic. So you're talking about three decades of not improving. Shouldn't that raise some major red flags for educators or government officials uh, or city leaders? Something is broken. Man, we could have a whole session on just this, right? <laughs> we could start out there and just be there forever. <laughs> yeah, I'm all about that. <laughs> you know, Kevin, I'm curious. How did you and your sister handle being pretty much the only black kids in the neighborhood and at your school? Did you feel like you had a lot of pressure, like you were representative of the entire black community? Did your parents ever tell you the truth about the snakes, the dog, and the grass? Did they explain it as racism? You know, it's, it's one of those balanced things. Um, I knew very well, and my sister knew very well, that we were the black kids and the black kids in the school and in the area. Uh, that was never hidden. And there is an expectation with parents, especially at that age. Both of my parents were from North Carolina, which is still considered extremely racist right now and and they came out of there they were born in 45 so by the time they're 15 they're in the 60s you know so it's not like racism and issues with racism is something that is unknown to them um so they kind of tried to figure out a balance it was always known hey you're you're a black male you have to do better you have to do more you have to watch yourself uh you have to be aware at all times and, you understand that. And on some level, even as I become an adult and I have a, a nine-year-old son, I now even understand it more than then, of course. Um, so you have that going on, but they didn't tell you everything because you want your house to feel safe. You're trying to have the house feel like a safe place. And so when it comes to your dog being killed, you, they're not gonna explain what happened then, but as we became of age and got older, it was explained at that point. And I get it. I get it. I do the same with my son. Totally. We just want to protect our kids and their innocence for as long as possible, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Now, there, now there are certain things I did recently I was just immediately talking to him about um, because of the political climate and the social climate that's been happening right now. Oh, yes. Our kids are more aware than we think. They're always watching, aren't they? And availability to media, yeah, it, it, it changes a lot of things, honestly. Yes, good point. Our kids have way more access to media nowadays than we did. What must that do to the kids seeing images or videos of police brutality against people who look like them? They must become so afraid of the police. How do you explain racism from authority figures that we're supposed to trust and obey? Here's the sad part about that. We had had that discussion long before George Floyd. Really? You know, we'd had that discussion long before, be, 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 
George Floyd was not the first iteration of that conversation. Um, because now what you have is you have video and stuff capturing this. And I've, I've had experiences with cops um, to this similar... Luckily, they didn't pull me out of a car or anything, but I've been held at gunpoint more than a couple of times. No. And yeah, so one time, for example, one time, like I said, I was a musician. Or I am a musician. I was coming back from a gig. I usually actually am in the house by sundown. I'm like, I'm a solar powered individual. So we're coming from a gig. This is probably 12, 1230 in the evening, in the a.m. See, I can't even get the get the times right. So 12:30 a.m. Coming home from a gig, we drive by. This is actually on college campus. We drive by uh, where a cop is stationed. Now, usually 12:30 in the morning, there's no cop there. 12:30 in the morning, no cop there. I have a can of soda in the car. There's a trash can by it. So I just reach out, throw the uh, soda can in the trash next to this this metal security booth. As any conscientious person would do. Apparently, the cop had fallen asleep in there. So the cop, for some reason thinking somebody is attacking him, comes out gun drawn pointed straight at me. Now, to be completely honest with you, I probably should have been shot that night. Because at this point, I'm just at this point, I'm just done with it. I am I'm 20, I'm 21 at this point. I'm tired of it. I've been at that point I've seen a dead body. I've been in, caught in two drive-bys. I'm just done. Like I'm sick at this point. And so I'm looking at him like in you have to understand, I'm not a, I don't cuss. I usually just, I'll laugh all day long, but I, I don't usually catch an attitude for anything. Um, and so I'm, I just start going off. Like, if you're going to F and shoot me, go ahead and F and shoot me. Oh no. And thankfully I'm in the car with, <laughs> I'm in the car with the with the rest of the combo who kind of hop out and drag me back. Cause thankfully he didn't have the energy. I was approaching him. I was walking towards him. And I probably could have been shot that night. So you have a scenario like that. And then you have another scenario post-college. Uh, I was going out with uh, three of my fraternity brothers. And, and this is kind of indicative of what goes on where we come out of a movie theater because we're all just hanging out. And I look in the back of the parking lot and I spot the cop car. I'm always looking for the cop car. I can't lie. I spot the cop car. I'm like, there's a cop in the back. I pull out. And we pull out the driveway and we notice that he starts to pull out behind us. I'm like, okay, he's, he's just pulling out at the same time, but I'm going to keep my eye on him. I drive about two miles. I change lanes. He changed lanes. I make a right turn. He makes a right turn. And I'm like, all right, we're about to be pulled over. So we're driving, we make a right turn and I'm taking them by where I'm working. Cause I want to be like, ah, oh, this is the place of the, the place I work. Uh, I'm really cool and excited about this. And I put on my signal light to change lanes. He pulls me over. So he walks up and he's like, uh, license and registration, does that whole deal. And I'm like, why am I being pulled over? You change, you signal to change lanes, which means, which might be an indication that you're drunk. Seriously? Which, yeah, that makes no sense whatsoever. And of course, in another thing, I'm like, you pulled me over for drinking. I don't drink, dude. <laughs> but, but you're just looking for a reason. You're looking for a reason. But because I asked that question, gun got drawn. What? Then next thing you know, you have three or four cars behind us and you have a partner on one side, a partner on the other side. We have two guns drawn on us and he proceeds to go one by one taking our IDs to try and find something that he can pull us over for, that he can arrest us for, or give us a ticket for. At this point, he has no reason to give us anything. 
He has no reason to have pulled us over. He has no reason to have his gun on us, but he does, but he does. And this is that time error for, this is that time error. You remember when cell phones were by the minute? Yep. Yeah. There's this time error when cell phones were by the minute, but anytime, anytime you always had the cell phone up, even long before you had that uh, dash, the dash, whatever as you call them, but you always had those up. And as soon as the light came on, call the mother, I'm getting pulled over and you leave it on. And that was long before you had video or anything that there was a set structure. This is how you behave when you get pulled over. And this is going back to 2000. This is going back to 97. This is going back into the nineties, which of course goes back to the sixties, seventies, forties and whatnot. So this is so unfair and you can't even speak up about it. Not by any means. Not by any means. You can say all you want about, no, um, you don't have the right to do that. Okay, say that. Say that and see what happens. <laughs> like, say that and see what happens to you. So, you know, when I'm talking to my son about this, it's, you're nine, but I'm telling you this at four and five. Um, I'm telling you this shortly after the George Floyd thing where I'm saying to him, hey, when you go into a store, Never be away from myself or Cassie, who's my wife. So never be further away from her or myself. Always be within sight. Because there is somebody out there who may want to kill you just because of the way you look. And I said it to him just like that. That makes me so sad that you have to have that conversation with your son at such a young, vulnerable age. It's sad. It's hurt. Yeah, it's hurt. What? Why would somebody want to kill you? Well, I hate to tell you this, but sometimes people look at you and they don't see a kid. They see an animal. They see an animal. And because and, and they will not have a problem killing you because you're not human simply because of your skin. And I've told people this story and they're like, wow, how can you say that? I'm like, have you ever looked at the pictures of Emmett Till? Like, have you ever looked at those pictures? That is not something that was that long ago, especially when you talk about uh, black culture and the black American life. Because what is now George Floyd and Sandra Bland and Freddie Gray and all those names, those are big now only because there's video. You know, that, that's been happening. And that's been a story and that's been something we've been taught and educated to understand could happen from from birth but see that's not something that's generally studied in all the schools you said you've been educated about that since birth but a lot of white kids haven't sure we have one month dedicated to black history but black history is entwined in the fabric of our country we all need to hear and learn about these shameful horrific events that have happened we need to own up to them and atone for them i think we need to make this right we need to improve the version of history all kids learn in school because if they only hear the good stuff and it's not balanced out with the stories of oppression and discrimination and terrorism on black lives, we won't believe it when it does happen. Some people even say racism is getting better in this country. You know, any inch might be better. It doesn't mean it's where it's supposed to be. Yes. We... Lots of room for improvement. If we talk about, and if we're looking at it specifically from the American perspective, and I know I'm sucking my dates and time frames when it comes to American history, but we're talking about somewhere in the 1700s, right? 
So let's say we're talking some mid 1700s. We're now talking about 300 years later and we're talking about it's getting better. It's been 300 years. Shouldn't it have been solved? Shouldn't it have been resolved? Shouldn't we be further down the line? Shouldn't we expect more from who we are as people than to just be able to say it's getting better? It's not supposed to get better at this point. It's supposed to be getting done. Yes. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and for me, when people say it's getting better, then I, I, I actually talk about racism frequently in a roundabout way because I like to talk about it in the sense of culture. And the reason I talk about culture is because racism was a concept that was created. You know, it was created in 14, was that 1453, that date I remember, but it was created. <laughs> so it was a concept that was created for the sake of generating and maximizing power. But if we can go back to understanding culture and what culture is, then we actually get to dig back past racism, deeper than racism, to understand what are the things that cause us to actually want to be racist or act in racist ways. And so, and, and what I like about that too, is I also feel like it opens us up in so many other different directions. Ooh, Kevin, that's so genius. Yes, culture is a more gentle sounding word than uh, say the sting and the harshness of the word racism, uh, which seems to cause so much polarity. People seem to stop listening once they hear that word being thrown around, you know? Um, I really like how you said dig back past racism to understand culture. Oh, I'd love to hear more. Yeah, so you can't, it, it's the same lessons that apply across. It's the same, it's the same lessons that apply, that apply to understanding the value of women in the world versus men. It's the same lessons that apply across. And so when we talk about racism, we lock it into, well, I can't understand racism. I, I'll never be a black man. Yeah, but you've been a minority. And though you don't understand fully what my black experience is, like you would, you understand how women are marginalized, marginalized through, through history, just through professional world. You understand that. And so you can take some of that understanding and apply it across. But if you're unwilling to be open to a group that's different than you and understanding the story and the trials and the tribulations and the struggles and the stories of people who are different than you, then you, I, I just don't see how you can be like, I'm not a racist, but I still have problems with women. I don't have problem with women, but I still have a problem with uh, homosexual gays and queers. You know, <laughs> I don't have a problem with those three, but I still have a problem with uh, pick something else. See, Kevin, this is why I love the work you do and who you are. You turn the whole conversation upside down and just give it a whole new twist. It's kind of like you back into it and then come at it from a different angle, a new angle for people to see it in themselves and instead of being told that they're racist. Because you're right, it is one and the same. It's a type of discrimination. That's language people get. If they can see it in one area, then maybe they will be able to see the other that they've been excluding, no matter who that other is. Yeah, because the, the tools of inclusivity are the same. You first have to acknowledge that there's an issue. And then once you acknowledge it, you have to be able to understand and learn it and be able to understand where your, where your deficit is or honestly where your ignorance is. 
and people paint that as a bad word. And I don't think ignorance is as bad a word as people think. Um, you know, ignorance means you lack knowledge or you just don't have class in a certain area. Guess what? We're all ignorant in something. Yes, we are. And that reminds me of how you say in your ground rules that we have to get comfortable being wrong. But that would require humility, Kevin. And that seems hard to come by oftentimes for most that's, that's of us. The, that's the it? thing. <laughs> it's the thing. And the thing is, we don't. <laughs> like, you know, I was I was working with my son with math the other day and it hits me. You're like, you know, the reason people learn math is because they're so easily willing to say, you know what? I suck at algebra. All of a sudden, because they said that they have space to learn algebra. You know, if you say, I suck at understanding black folk, you now all of a sudden have the space to actually learn about black culture. Oh, yes. What an excellent correlation that is. So, Kevin, would you mind telling us more about what Open Windows culture is and exactly what you do and how did you come to decide that this was what you wanted to devote your life to? Yeah, so Open Windows Culture is what I do full-time and I do, I call it culture training. I call it diversity and culture training because diversity is still the word that I need to use for people to understand fully what I mean by culture. Although I would love to drop the diversity word entirely. Um, but that started back in 93, 94. Actually started when I was still in middle school. So I, I'll give you, the gist was, in middle school, I was that student council brat. And every, sta every state has like a student council structure that actually goes up to the state level. I was in Maryland, Maryland Association of Student Council. And what I benefit from there the most was because it was a small state, we often got together to do training, education, and soft skills training. So we were doing communication skills and leadership theory and all that stuff um, in middle and high school. And because we were learning it, it was student-led and student-taught. So we would get trained and learn how to do these, learn how to facilitate from a certain perspective. And then we would take that and we would get trained on how to do it. And then we'd do the same thing. That sounds like the best way to learn. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, we lobbied for, uh, we lobbied the state on youth issues, youth laws. So I was down at the state capitol, new senators and whatnot, and you're, you're in middle and high school. And once again, this is coming out of Baltimore. So, you know, I had a, I had a view of the other side. And so through that, I, I kind of latched on to diversity because what happened was you weren't allowed to teach it actually for the first two to three years, which was lovely. You had to be at a certain point of facilitation in order to teach it, in order to facilitate it. And, and the reason I keep on saying facilitate over teaching is because the idea is we allow we allow the group to lead where the discussion where the discussion goes. It's self-exploration. And if you do anything in a self-exploration sense, you understand that it can go five different ways, which means you have to prepare five different ways. That is so genius. I so love everything about this method of learning. And I just love your distinction between teaching and facilitating. You're so right. People don't need information thrown at them. They need to take the time to work through the process of learning and questioning, and then they end up owning it by themselves. But that does make it a little bit harder on the facilitator because you have to be prepared for whichever way the discussion might go, don't you? Yep, yep. 
they get to own it. They get to own it. They get to have the process the way they need to have their process, which is wonderful, which I fell in love with doing that and just kept doing it even even as I aged out and grew out. Um, I just kept doing it throughout the years and did it through college and on out into the professional world. And I always geared it towards companies who specifically were looking to do something with it. And that's been my thing. And that has evolved over the years where I haven't worked with companies who just want to have a training session. Um, because I'm just not the guy for that. But if you want to figure out what are the next step actions, like how do I actually turn this conceptualization, this blank sheet of paper thing into an actual action that changes where we are, then that, that, that's, that's where I come from. And then over the last couple of years, it's evolved from me talking about just diversity into talking about culture on a broad spectrum. Because I don't always talk about race. Last couple years, a lot of the groups I've discussed and worked with, um, disability, disability employment, we've talked about that a lot. I've talked about the glass ceiling for women, especially in financial, in financial and in legal uh, industry. So I've done a lot of stuff along that line. So I can actually come in and talk about all of those things because I'm talking about culture. And I can relate it to back to I can re relate it to racism. That's definitely a personal issue for me, but I can relate it to uh, racism. Uh, I did a session with uh, American Indians uh, about a year and a half ago. Ooh, I would have loved to have been in on that class. Cool experience, like really cool experience. Um, yeah, and, and we were talking about the government relationship with American Indian uh, tribes and locations to uh, to job placement and economic development and all this stuff and how to get those those entities to figure out how to partner because there's still a lot of, a lot of stress and agita there. So I, I can walk into the room and I talk about culture because once again, the tools you need for culture and understanding culture are the tools you need for racism. If we can learn how to, and that's why I talk about racism in that roundabout way. Like if we can learn how to not get stuck at the surface of what racism is, because that's ultimately what it, what it is. It's the superficial. And you think about things being skin deep and we go skin shallow. We see the skin and we stop. And we never get past that point of the skin. Yes, it is such a superficial difference only. Yeah, it, we don't get past the point of the skin. And then we wonder why we're so happy for it to be better when it should be longer down the road. You know, I'm wondering what your experience has been in regards to microaggressions. Or do you even like that term? Do you prefer a different way of discussing and recognizing these passive-aggressive methods of sidelining the other? I like that you ask, do I like the term? Because I do struggle with it. I fully understand the idea of what microaggressions, microaggressions are, what they mean, and why they're there. And part of my, I guess, own theory has an issue with that because I think of once again, I've said I've studied a lot of soft skills and leadership training. So I often try and figure out how issues of culture directly aligns and how issue of racism directly align with communication theory or conflict management theory. And so and when I'm thinking of conflict management theory, I actually think of um, a combination of, I think Freud came up with the uh, thought of unconscious conflict, which is just deep set uh, deeply planted conflict that you don't even know is there, which, and then I like to think of that bubbles up into subconscious conflict, 
and then you have your conscious conflict. So I kind of think of your microaggressions on that scale. Ooh, that's good. I'm so glad you brought Freud into it with his levels of awareness. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, because what happens is ultimately that conflict comes from somewhere deep inside you that you never recognize, somewhere that you begin to recognize, and then it's out there. You recognize it in you. And I think microaggressions falls on that scale without totally attacking that whole scale. And so, yeah, they're, they're definitely the microaggressions that I've had that I'm sure a, a lot of black males have had, the walking across the street type of thing. Um, I've said I'm from Baltimore. A lot of people, oh, you don't sound like you're from Baltimore. Or you get the nice, oh, you're so well-spoken. Or you're such a kind man, that type of stuff. They do bother me on a cert to a certain extent. But I also think because of what I do and I guess what I feel is always created to do, I almost am one of those people who, when it happens, I feel as though it's more my purpose to kind of easily kind of point out and say, hey, this might be where that came from. This is why that might have been where that came from. Have you ever explored that? What a great non-threatening way of broaching the subject and calling someone out without them kind of feeling like they're being called out. So if somebody does it by mistake, then I can be fine with that. It's only if you do it by mistake and you're unwilling to recognize it's a mistake or you just keep on doing it and don't care that it becomes really a problem. That, that goes back to that, that ignorance thing for me because we're all ignorant. Ignorant to me isn't the problem. It's when you know you're ignorant and you allow yourself to be there that becomes a problem. And so I worry when somebody knows that that can be taken wrong and then it's like, well, I don't get it. It's too hard to change or I just don't feel like it. Well, in that case, we now have a problem because now you understand what's going on and you're choosing to ignore it. That's completely different than just not knowing. Yes. Then it's intentional ignorance, isn't it? Yeah, it's intentional at that point. It's hurtful at that point. So how do you cope with willful ignorance or when people just don't want to learn from you? when you're out facilitating these diversity and cultural awareness discussions music <laughs> i just have i just have good coping skills but <laughs> but no no i um for example selfless plug here uh my band is cognate souls and the reason i named it that for example is cognate which is the correct pronunciation of it means to develop a word that develops from one root so so cognate souls to me and I like the cognate because it just sounds better. But cognate souls to me is just the idea that our souls are all connected in one root. And so, yeah, our souls are all connected in one root. And so the music that is created from that is about understanding one love and our souls being connected and trying to understand and value not only the gift of time and the gift of the world, but the gift of love and understanding each other. And so, yeah, a lot of that stuff gets wrapped around into a song sooner or later. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. Music truly is healing. That's beautiful that you have an outlet. Yeah. Like you got to have you got to have something that allows you to cope. You have to have a safe space, yeah. You know, Kevin, based on what you've been talking about um, about history and ignorance. It sounds like you love to read as much as I do. And uh, I think you've already read, you've mentioned one of Ibram Kendi's books, Stamped from the Beginning. But have you read 
his uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist book. I've read that one and I'm still working my way through <laughs> Stamp from the Beginning, which is a textbook. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> I wasn't able to finish that one either. Well, speaking of his earlier book, do you remember when he said or he mentioned something about racism not being caused by hate and ignorance, but by self-interest? I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Would you mind sharing those with us? I honestly think he's too kind. Really? Too kind? I do think he's too kind, but I'm going to negate that it's not because of hate. I don't think it's an issue with hate. I honestly don't. I think it's an issue with power. And when he's saying self-interest, he's politely saying power. It's an issue of power and wanting to hold and grab hold and maintain and not release power. Ooh, that's good. I need to write that down. Self-interest is an issue of power. And because you don't want to lose that stature of power, it then gives you the freedom to do whatever you need to do to maintain hold on to it. So they feel justified, right? Yeah, so you justify. So then that hate starts to come out. Then that ignorance starts to come out. Because when you're saying, oh, well, the wealth gap in America, that was created because black people don't want to work hard enough. Really? Cotton fields. I know, right? I totally don't understand that argument. Oh, heck yeah. Power or the perception of power, whatever you have to do to maintain it. Whatever you have to do to maintain it. And that means all is allowed. All is allowed. So, yeah, I think, I think where he says self-interest, I would just flatly narrow that down to its power. It's the consumption of power. It's the desire to hold on to power. Because you, th you go back and you think about all these cultural elements once again. For example, if you're talking about women and their ability to advance past the glass ceiling, which was already hard enough as it is, and now you see articles all over the world that women are going to have are just dropping out of the workforce because of COVID-19. Why is it that a female cannot get above the, the partner, get a partner's level in firms? They aren't less intelligent. You know, they're not less capable. Because women have kids doesn't mean they can't balance that. They've been doing it all their life, doing it better than men on most occasions. So <laughs> there's no limitation there except for, wait a minute, if a woman comes into our partner and this partnership, something's going to change. We don't want that to change. Let's find a reason. I'm so glad you were able to explain this in terms of the glass ceiling and women as well, because the exact same principles apply. It's all about the ruling class or the powerful not wanting to lose the power. We can connect the dots through all these different types of isms, can't we? Yep. It's the, it's the hold on the power. Think, think about the concept of immigrant and the concept of uh, 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 immigrants coming here to steal our jobs and to do all this or to do. Really? Really? Because if you go out and, and you go out and talk to the day laborer. That, that, that day laborer that you think is so bad. And what is he trying to do? The same thing that a middle-aged, uh, a middle-income white person is trying to do. Feed his family, provide his kids with some education, put clothing on the back, give them a good home. He's trying to do the same thing. It just looks different because his circumstances are different. But we, 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 we've got to make that seem like it's a, it's a threat to our power. So we're willing to say whatever is said to hold him where he is. 
so you can stay where you are and move you up. I mean, it, it, it is that visual of just stepping on somebody's head so you can get a, a higher position. Kevin, you, my friend, are one awesome teacher. I mean, facilitator. I have learned so much from your perspective today. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I, I'd like to move on to our closing questions. Um, I could talk to you all day, but <laughs> that wouldn't be honoring your time. Um, the first one is, what is your tip to make the world a better place? All right. Be comfortable being wrong. No, no matter how hard we try, no matter how honest we're trying to be, we say something wrong all the time. We do something wrong all the time. We're human. Be, we're human. <laughs> we're human. We just be comfortable being wrong. And then number two, listen. Like, like, listen, um, like this, for, this is a wonderful example of that, of just being able to sit down for some, for an hour with somebody and just ask questions and listen, you know, don't, you don't have to defend. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to say, I agree. You don't have to say, I disagree. You don't have to say anything. Just, just listen, because if we just did that a little bit more. I think that would just open up the doors to so much more understanding. That is such beautiful wisdom. I always appreciate the reminder to listen more. What are you the most thankful for right now? I have a wonderfully supportive family. Uh, so my wife has been amazing as I've walked through some of this and, and the wonderful joys and struggles that incorporate that. Um, Sadly, sometimes suffering is our greatest teacher in life, isn't it? Yeah. Lastly, what is your favorite quote? So, I can't say this one exactly, but I remember it way far back to middle school time frames, and it sticks in my head. And it's something to the effect of, life we know is difficult. This is true, and the fact that we know that life is now difficult means that life's difficulties no longer cease to exist. We know that we have to overcome it, and so it no longer matters. It no longer comes as a surprise. We know it's difficult. You know you're going to have to work. You know you're going to have struggles. You know you're going to have problems. So you can't just say it's hard to do this. It's tiring to do this. It's stressing to do this. We know that before we start. Oh, my gosh, that is so beautiful. I love that. It's so deep and it relates so perfectly to the overwhelming frustration and anger you must have to work through on a daily basis living with racism as a reality. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of things. I mean, for me to tell you that I'm not tired sometimes doing it would be a lie. You know, for me to tell you that I don't get tired of talking about racism or sometimes get tired of talking to people about open up your mind would be a lie. I sometimes know I'm going into a room, <laughs> talking to a room of people who might hear only 10% of it and might walk out the room and immediately go right back into, I was doing something with a group and they actually got a shortened session. Usually I do, I do about four to five hours and they got a shortened session. So at the end of this session, we're doing, we're talking back and I'm going back through the room, kind of processing information. And this one person and the last comment is like, I don't think there's such thing as white privilege. No. And this is the end of the, 
I can't go back into it. I don't have discussion. I can't, I can't process it. And at the same time, I also know, unfortunately, I could process it for an hour. But if you don't want to see it, it's, it's not much I can do for you. And, and so, but I know I'm going to experience that when I go in the room. But I also know I'm going to experience seven or eight or nine out of ten who are, who are going to get something that allows them to go home and open it up. And so I still got to continue walking, even though I'm tired. True, because that person is still blinded by his own biases, despite what new information you might have just presented to him today to open up his mind to new culture ideas, huh? Oh, Kevin, I have so much respect for you. I'm so glad I got to meet you today and learn from your life and your experiences. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. I appreciate it. In his book, Kevin refers to himself as a realistic idealist. I like that title. I think it's perfect. It's a great description of him. I just appreciate his desire to always be growing and evolving in his understanding. I also respect how he is proactive in his realistic idealism about a unified understanding and action leading to growth. This whole culture versus race thing is a huge revelation to me, actually. I just want to sit and ponder this for a long time until it sinks in. Race is superficial, a surface understanding. Whereas culture requires us to dive in for a deeper understanding that might reference things such as customs or art or institutions of a certain grouping of people. Understanding culture can get messy though. It can take a long time and requires lots of self-reflection, not self-justification. Focusing on race is the quick and easy way out, I'm afraid. I'm so glad Kevin discussed these distinctions and encouraged us to focus more on opening our minds to learning about culture. And remember, it's a process, and we don't get good at it overnight, and we'll still mess up. But if we are intentional and aware, we'll grow from our mistakes as well. I also greatly appreciate Kevin's ground rules. What a genius way to start off a conversation so we all know we're on the same foot. Those ground rules are going to be stuck in my head for a long time and cause me to really think about things before I discuss them with people, and hopefully I'll put them to practice in my own life. Robert Sapolsky, a professor of neurosurgery at Stanford University, says, an open mind is a prerequisite to an open heart. Kevin takes this to heart the way he lives his life with purpose how he helps facilitate diversity growth, and how he stays open to new experiences and perspectives and inspires me to do the same. May we all choose to open the windows of our mind as Kevin has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.